Hello and welcome to Open School of Business. Today I have a pleasure to introduce you to Rick Morris. He's also a PMP like myself and um, he is a um, consultant, author, mentor and evangelist for project management. Um, one of his recent um, projects is the PM Tribe and I'm very excited about that uh, informational um, community and uh, resource. Uh, I think it is going to be something really innovative for our PM community. Um, and also, uh, Rick is, um, has so many different um, business lines and uh, different interests. Um, I want to start uh, talking about them one by one. But before I dive into it, uh, I want to welcome Rick uh, on our show today. Hi, Hi there. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, it's a pleasure. And um, uh, you've done um, some uh, podcasts, you've done, um, you've written books, and those are the things that I'm really passionate about. So I think we're going to have really fun and engaging conversation today. Absolutely. Um, usually I ask everyone, what are their three big things right now that they're working on, uh, especially because most of our guests are multi-passionate entrepreneurs where they have many things going on. Uh, so, so that our audience knows uh, what is going on in your life right now, in your business, uh, can you just give an overview of um, uh, two, three big things that you're doing? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is is diversification. And especially as an entrepreneur, somebody, you know, the, the, there's the entrepreneurs that try to do everything, you know, all the time. And, and uh, but I also look at, you know, what are the different streams, because they all seem to peak and valley at different times to where I have a steady kind of work stream. Uh, so the big projects I'm working on right now, you said the PM Tribe, uh, which is a collaborative community with really kind of six of the brightest minds in project management, where we're going to lead discussions, share ideas, try to help. Pro like when I go to these conferences and, and I love PMI, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of PMI, but I feel like a lot of the keynote speeches or even the events that I go to um, are high level, they're informational, they're great. But a lot of times people will come up to me after a speech even and, and go, wow, I don't know how to apply that to my daily life. I don't know how to apply that to my company. And I think there's a huge gap there. So we're trying to solve that with uh, what we call our, our lanes or our groups. Uh, but each one of us, each one of the six of us will have a, a particular lane where we'll have a live phone call every week. And there'll be about 10 minutes of teaching in that. We'll bring up a topic, bring up a teaching, share some latest content. But the rest is going to be direct Q&A. And that Q&A is really designed to make sure that we're getting information, we're sharing ideas, and we're, we're trying to solve something particular to that tribe member. And so we want to build this really vibrant community where we all can be just kind of raw with each other. We can share our frustrations and we can start to really build some content and ideas and, and kind of new influence that, that we could do together as a tribe. Um, so I'm super passionate about that right now. That uh, launched uh, April 1st. We're, we're so excited. Uh, and we, we've started the, the the calls weekly. So I host a call every Wednesday. Uh, but the other faculty members, we have uh, Elena Hill, who does change management. We have Colin D. Ellis out of Australia, who does uh, corporate culture. Uh, Elizabeth Heron, who wrote The Girl's Guide to PM. 
she's going to be talking um, through uh, just working more, po- you know, working more positively. Uh, we've got John Stenbeck, who's probably certified more agile practitioners than, than anybody I know. And of course, he'll be talking about agile. We've got Peter Taylor, who wrote The Lazy, the Lazy PM. Uh, and he talks about working smarter. And uh, if you do project management the right way, you shouldn't have to work so hard. And then you've got me. I'll be talking about blending agile and PPM methodologies to the portfolio and program layer, as well as talking about any of your software questions when it comes to project management software. So we're, we're each going to have a call every week and, and have that open QA. Uh, other uh, projects for me, I've, I've started building out a sales and marketing engine for a company called PDWare, uh, which is a uh, project portfolio management system that's built on resourcing first. Uh, I'm very passionate about I've done probably 150 implementations of various project portfolio management tools and all of them, I don't care how good your portfolio is or how good your portfolio decision-making is. If you don't know where your resources are, how they're utilized and whether or not you can actually do it. uh, One of the things I always say is, are you picking projects based on what you can spend in a budget or are you picking projects based on what your resources can realistically achieve within the year? And in almost every company I work with, it's that first one, right? They, they go to a budgeting cycle. They say, this is what we're going to spend on. Here's all the projects. And then we create these resource utilization uh, crunches where we don't have enough people to do the job. And so I'm very passionate about helping people find that utilization in a very quick and easy way. And so we've partnered with PDWare. And then on the fun side, I have an entertainment side of the business. Great friend of mine uh, by the name of Damon Pampolina just launched his po- his podcast. It's it's more tongue in cheek. It's comedy. It's it's entertainment. He uh, was a, a original member of the '90s version of the Mickey Mouse Club. Was a part of a pop group called the Party, uh, which I produce. And um, we've got uh, his podcast that just launched March 17th. So those are the three projects I'm focused on right now. Awesome, and uh, it is. Uh... Uh, very serendipitous, I think, in in my opinion, because um, all these three are somehow connected to my previous career, what I'm interested in right now. So I have a lot of questions uh, to follow up on these three immediately. Absolutely. Uh, so the first one is the PM tribe. Um, uh, would you be interested? Uh, do you have an interest in having a lane uh, about leadership? or about uh, uh, putting PMs uh, on a track where they can achieve executive positions in the future. Absolutely, that's actually interwoven between all six of ours. So my, my big quote is that uh, the only skill set a project manager can really develop to be successful is influence. And then if you talk to, to my mentor and friend, John Maxwell, he says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And so, Everything that we're doing around the tribe is about increasing our influence. Um, I've had the pleasure of working, obviously, with John. Um, I just got to work with Dr. Robert Cialdini, who wrote uh, Influence, the Science and Practice of Persuasion. Um, and so everything that we're doing is about increasing our influence and really starting to do corporate culture changes from the bottom up. And so all of that has to do with leadership. Right. And um uh, you've wrote several books that are project management, but mainly the people aspects of it. Correct. So, when I yeah. first started writing in 2008, um, I was actually inspired by a, a book and, and he's become a friend of mine. He's probably, he was the first person, it was a, a book called Radical Project Management. The gentleman's name is Rob Tomset. 
first person that ever made me laugh in a project management book. First person that really dealt with a lot of the um, personal sides. That that book was written, I think, year 2000. Uh, but he was talking about a lot of the agile concepts that people are just kind of grabbing onto today. But uh, so I was certainly inspired by that. And I felt like there was a huge gap at at the PMI conferences and a lot of the project management books that, you know, you have the way that PMI teaches you, which is correct. I mean, these are the functional, it's like going to college and, and learning, you know, accounting, you, you've got to know all the rules and principles and, and how everything's supposed to be done. But then you have to learn how to be a good team player on the other side of being an accountant and how to engage clients or how to deal with your teammates. And I felt like uh, a lot of the, the technical aspect of project management is managing down. It's, you know, filling out the, the work breakdown structure and getting estimates and, and, you know, tracking the progress for the team. But we lose something, and, and this is what Rob said that kind of changed my whole career. He said, uh, pro projects fail because of context, not content. And what he's really saying in that statement is that once we kind of produce that status report, the influence of the project manager seems to drop off. And what we have to control is the influence and the communication cycles upstream way more than we have to manage things downstream. And so when I started to focus on that, that's when my career as a consultant and my career as a project manager really grew is because, for instance, um, I'll give you one of my, uh, one of my uh, analogies. A lot of times uh, we get the mandated date, right? It is, you got to have this done by, by June 30th. And so most project managers accept that date and they just take it to the team and off we go. When we're influencing up, the first question we should ask is, you know, why this date? Who came up with this date? And it's not a hard pushback. We're not trying to challenge authority by any means. But you know, when they ask me, what do I mean? It's like, well, is this a first-to-market strategy? Is this regulatory-driven? Is this, you know, why, why are we saying June 30th? Because if for some reason we can't bring it in until August, like I want to know what decisions I need to bring to you so that we can get, get you what you need. I'm not saying June 30th is not possible. I just want to know why. And just that conversation alone has given me flexibility and dates to be able to kind of get a team to relax and really focus on the creative side versus, you know, the technical side of trying to slam everything through. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I mean, it's about the balance, in my opinion. And the reason why I say that is um, uh, I do the workshops for uh, five dysfunctions of a team, which became five cohesive uh, behaviors of a, an effective team by um, Son. Oh no 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 that's uh, Patrick Lencioni. By Patrick Lencioni and then um, uh, his uh, publishing company got the rights to do that as a uh, uh, consultancy projects for anyone who want to get certified and then roll it out um, nationwide and right now obviously because of COVID-19 it's becoming a little bit more difficult because these workshops have to be done in person where the executive teams comes together and, and they uh, analyze how they work. Um, they try to build trust. Uh, first of all, they, they look into where the, uh, they have trust in the beginning to begin with. So, uh, but one of the things that um, they were uh, highlighting is that if you're the manager uh, of a department, uh, which team do you really consider your team? Your department or the executive team that you're part of? And that's where 
people have their preferences. Some would be more with the executive team and some would be more on the side of their departments. It's like being a son or a daughter and which family is yours, where you have your uh, kids and your spouse or where you have your parents and your siblings. So you have to strike that balance because if you're leaning towards your own uh, department uh, too much, then you're losing that influence over in the executive team because you're not being a team player. Uh, you're not uh, trying to do what's best for the company overall. You're trying to do what's best for your department. And on the, and on the other hand, if you're leaning towards your executive team and then your department suffers because of like, you're not questioning certain deadlines and you're not questioning budget cuts, uh, all this impacts work. So uh, I think this is excellent example that you brought up that uh, you have to stand your ground and really see both teams as your own team. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's if project managers play that card well, that's something that can bring them success. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a mindset. You know, I, I train any project manager that works with me and, and something I've done for a long time is I don't ever say no. And, and that sounds bad when we say that, but as project managers, our job is to figure it out. And even if you look at the PMBOK and, and what we're supposed to do when new criteria has been introduced is we're supposed to analyze it against our plans and then present options to the, the sponsor. It never said that we make the decision, yes or no. And so if they're making a super ridiculous request of me, my, my job is, is to look at them and say, absolutely, let me go figure out what that's going to take. And then I'll present options in such a way that they have to tell me no, but we are the can-do kind of people. And, and I see a lot of project managers fail in that scenario. So you know, in order to, to, to shave three months off this project, I mean, you need to hire 75 people. Now, I went and figured that out. I've got the data to prove it. What do you want to do, Mr. and Mrs. Executive? Um, and they'll be like, we're, we're not going to hire 75 people. Okay, well, then we're going to extend the date, right? It, it, but I, I pose it in such a way that they're the ones making the decision. And they're telling me, no, I, I don't look at them and go, well, that's never going to work. Or that, that's a dumb idea or any of that kind of stuff. Our job is to figure it out, find the path and give it to them. Um, and, and very rare. I mean, we still have those executives that go, great, go hire 75 people, which is just nuts. Right. But it's, uh, it is still, you know, the, the, our path is to present options. We, when, when I ask project managers what they do, if you, right, if I say, what do you do as a project manager? Right. People are like, uh, I mean, they stumble all over that. And I, I think there's a very simple answer for us that, that in, inspires the influence that we want. And that's simply, you know, we make dreams come true. And when people go, what do you mean? Like, so I'll be at a party. People go, what do you do for a living? And I make dreams come true. And they just, they'll double take. They'll look at me and go, seriously, <laughs> if you've got an idea, a thought, right? Yeah. You've got a business process. You've got, there's no product standing right now without somebody like us behind it. It's just simple as that. No computer, no app, no car, no building that didn't have a project manager there to help guide it, right? And right. people argue with me on that one. And so what I've learned to, to say with that is that certainly the product building, whatever, didn't reach its fullest potential without somebody like us behind it. 
Yeah, that's so true. And that's why my vision for um, all of the PMs who do have the ambition and, inspira and inspiration uh, to take that courage and to take more responsibility because I think they do deserve executive positions at the end because they have all the skill set. And you, especially if they follow that recipe you've been talking about, managing upwards and really increasing your influence. And so, uh, it, but the attaining the executive position, the way, the way I look at that is, would I prefer the title of an executive or would I prefer the, the trust of the executives? Because if, if I have the trust of the executives, it doesn't matter what my title is, I'm, I'm in that executive circle. And, you know, being a consultant now, um, I just, I just act as if I am talking to the CIO, CFO, uh, CEO at all times. Um, but by, by gaining that inner circle trust, you, you will move up the ranks, but being concerned about the title being, you know, how do I get to be an executive? How you get to be an executive is, is being the person that they can trust. I mean, so many CIOs and CEOs that I work with, they, they're operating with like 10% of the information. And the reason why they're only operating with 10% of the information is because everybody's afraid to tell them the other 90%. If you ever just sit there, I, I, I've sat for days with CEOs for their briefings and it's all just sunshines and rainbows. Nobody wants to tell them anything that's going wrong uh, because they feel like that that's going to be a hit on them. And the more honest you are, the more forthright you are. And again, though, and also don't come in with the problem. Come in with a problem stated and three solutions to offer, right? And, and that's how you gain trust. And you'll move right into an executive circle that way. But trying to strive for it or attain, you know, attain it that way, you're, you're not going to get it if you're striving. You get it by serving. Simple as that. Yes, I hear you. Um your uh, John Maxwell consultant coming out and uh, talking about the servant leadership. Uh, and I love that topic. Um, have you uh, incorporated some of that knowledge in your books? Uh, or was your, for example, your latest book, Stop Playing Games, or was it based on your experience uh, at based the workplace? It's based on an experience. Uh, you know, I had a great conversation with John uh, about this. Um, and I think one of the questions you were asking too is about writing books for people who want to write books. Um, if you read Project Management That Works, I wrote that book and I think it, I wrote it 14 years ago. And it's still a great seller. It still does very well every year. But I, I don't believe uh, in, in a couple of things I teach in that book anymore. Uh, so that book was absolutely the best that I had in, in 2006. It was the best I had. And in 2006, I just thought it was gold. Now that it's 2020, um, I've grown and I've grown a tremendous amount. And so when I do the seminars on the book, I still teach it the way the book says, and then I show them how I've evolved and how I've grown. Um, John did the same thing. If, if, if you follow John Maxwell's career, uh, he had a book called Developing the Leader Within You. And it's, it was one of the first books that said leaders can be developed. It's not something that you're born with. And right. everybody was writing management books at the time. And here comes this leadership book. Um, he was contracted to um, just do a second edition, a rewrite of it. I think in his contract, he was supposed to rewrite 10 to 15% of the book. And as he read it, um, 
he, he couldn't put it out anymore. He, he was like, it's a great book it, where it was and when it came out and where he was. But he ended up writing, developing the leader within you 2.0 because he's grown. He continues to grow. Um, and I think that that's important um, to, to, to recognize. Um, but yeah, the, the, the books themselves, I, I think everything with John has just pervaded me. I, I had an experience with him. Uh, we do something called Transformation of, of Countries. It's, it's an initiative that John started uh, to see if we could get people around roundtables talking about values, about universal core values. Could we see a country transform? And we started in, in Paraguay. We did Guatemala. Um, but the Costa Rica was the last one that we went to. And it, it was profoundly changing for me. Um, to not only really do servant leadership, but to see how people can respond to servant leadership. But um, I would say 2012, 2013, everything in my career was about the furthering of me. And I hit a leadership lid, almost lost my company, almost went bankrupt, the whole nine yards, you know, almost every entrepreneur story. And I found John and started to understand servant leadership and what that really means. Um, and my career is, has you know, been reborn and, and relaunched. So I think in every conversation I have and everything I write and every interaction with a client, I'm using something from John's leadership and, and something from servant leadership. Yes, I, I'm glad that you mentioned um, your entrepreneurial story and uh, uh, you would call them failures, but they're really lessons learned. But would you... Uh, mind telling us a story uh, of what you learned along the way and uh, what mistakes you've made. Oh, sure. And how yeah, you've tons of them. them. I don't think we have enough time in the podcast to talk about all my mistakes, but, uh, <laughs> but the, maybe the, some major yeah, sure. life. Uh, so the, the standout story for me uh, happened in 2012. It was a large oil and gas company. They were literally like fortune 10 and, um, they hired me to, to turn them into a world-class project management organization and uh, lots of red flags when I, when I joined, but my ego was, you know, I'm going to turn this thing around, man. I'm going to, I'm going to help a fortune 10. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, I just, I pushed and pushed and pushed. And it really was about uh, my ego. And they also just, they're, they're a client I wouldn't accept today because they weren't ready for it. They, they, they had no interest. They wanted somebody to come in and rubber stamp it and tell them that they were awesome. Uh, they really weren't interested in changing. Um, and so I just kept pushing that and pushing that and pushing that into the point that uh, I, I became depressed. I didn't think, uh, I, I didn't even think I wanted to do project management anymore. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, I was diversified. So I then took a distraction, started producing uh, some albums for for a band that I manage. Took my eye off the ball, and next thing you know, I mean, literally, uh, I get a foreclosure notice on my house that they were going to evict us on Thanksgiving, and I uh, had to go and deal with the bank. Made a made a deal with the bank, went and gave him a check, and the guy I made the deal with didn't put any notes in the computer, and he was off for the week. So they were like, I'm sorry, we can't accept your check. We're, we're coming to take your house tomorrow. And like that was as low as it gets. Um, luckily, uh, I, I fought through that. We were able to save the house, but I had to have kind of that, um, that, that really tough moment with myself is like, what are you doing? Who are you? What do you want to be? Um, and why did it fail? And so I probably had 35, 40 people working for me and I was down to one, one loyal uh, person that was staying with me. And we just had to rebuild. And it was, 
as much as you want to say it was the organization, as much as you want to say, you know, those people weren't loyal to me, it was a hundred percent me. Uh, it was how I managed. I didn't empower. I used to get mad because I couldn't go on vacation because everybody would call me. Well, why is everybody calling me? Because I would give them the answer. I wasn't coaching them. I wasn't teaching them. I wasn't showing them the way. I was just telling them the answer and off they went. So that was a huge realization for me. And I had to get back to, to grassroots and really start to look at what I believed in. And, and that's when I joined the John Maxwell team. Um, and then I met these amazing people at John Maxwell team who truly exemplify and show servant leadership. And, and I started getting coached from them, um, started, you know, utilizing my inner circle and, and eventually rebuilt you know, my career. But, um, you know, I, I liken this to, to children coming up these days. There's a lot of talk about what, you know, we call you know, phantom trophies or everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's special. Everybody's great. I, I, and I agree with all that, but there was a, a study that came out that most of the most successful CEOs were on a team that should have won the championship and lost. Like got second place, got third place, had that disappointment. And that was one of my other championship moments in 2012 is it, I lost. I, I was wildly successful. And then I, I, ran into something that was bigger than I was and I didn't know how to deal with it. But that pain that, that came with that, that depression that came with that is that driving force for me not to drop the ball now. Uh, that is so true. And, uh, um, uh, I don't want to get hang up on that topic, but, um, just want to follow up because it seems like because of one bad client, you lost the whole business. Yeah, it was, it was such a huge client that we were all wrapped up into them. And so um, part of the decisions I've made uh, is now I have a quality, you know, entrepreneurs chase any revenue. They, they think any revenue is great revenue. And actually it was Seth Godin who, who talked to me about this. I remember talking with, with Seth and he asked me, he says, are you a freelancer? Or are you an entrepreneur? And I was like, what's the difference? He goes, well, uh, a freelancer trades time for money. An entrepreneur uses their money to build another business and gets out of the way. He goes, one's not any better than the other. You just have to make the choice as to what you are. And I said, well, I'm a freelancer because most of my time is is billable time. And he goes, okay, then the only way you're going to reach your financial goals is to get better clients. Now, what I love about a Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, John Maxwell they have such simple statements that are so profound. And when he said, you just got to get better clients, he goes, you know, I said, well, explain that a little bit. He goes, well, do you have a client right now that's undervaluing you? Well, of course I had a billable rate client came to me, wanted to hire me for five months, uh, but asked me to take a reduced rate. I'm an entrepreneur. I figure burden, you know, burden the hand is much better. And so I, I took it. And of course they were a pain in the rear, um, but they didn't value me. So I got overworked and didn't get paid. But furthermore, those five months I was working for that organization, I wasn't prospecting and building other organizations, you know, other leads, other sources of revenue. And so he said, you got to get rid of those. He goes, even if you go two months with no revenue and then you pick up three months of the revenue you deserve, he goes, wouldn't that be better in the long run? And so immediately I fired that client and had one other client that I, I, walked away from as well and started focusing on just finding clients. So when people ask me now, do you reduce your rate? No, no, my rates, my rate, I know what my worth is on the open market. 
I've sustained a business for that. I'm not going to reduce my rate. And if they can't see the value of me at that price point, then they're not my client. And that was just one of the biggest things. It's so hard for an entrepreneur to learn is to not get undervalued in the market. I, I see all these people with these new knowledge products that are trying to do stuff for free. Well, we'll give this to you for free. Well, it's hard to come off of free. I, I, I know what, what I'm worth. I know what I, I should be doing. And I know there's companies out there that's willing to pay for it. And when they are, we, we do great work because the value that I can bring bus, you know, behind the, the money that you've spent is ridiculous. For instance, had a, had a client recently, they, they probably paid me $20,000, $25,000 in, in a short contracting gig. Um, but uh, the direct impact revenue was $7.5 million, right? And so whether they paid me 15, 20, 25, 30, or 50, they're still making a killing back. Um, it's knowing my worth. It's knowing my value. And uh, I think it's also the balance between yes and no. Because as entrepreneurs, we like the word yes. We're optimistic by nature. But there are certain things you have to say absolute no. So that's beautiful. That was a really good um, lesson. And I think um, it's important to learn these lessons based on experience. Because when someone tells you not to do it, it doesn't really sink. So, but I'm hoping that our audience would uh, take something from this and apply it to their lives right now and have that in enlightenment right now so they don't have to go through the pain that you went through personally. Yeah, I tell yeah. entrepreneurs all the time, it takes the same amount of time to close a $5,000 deal as it does a $5 million deal. It takes the same amount of time. Right, maybe one or two bigger hoops here and there, but for the most part, the you know, from prospect to to build the trust to get them to understand the value that you can provide. So I just started aiming higher, and it's amazing when when you just make that decision in your life that you're going to aim higher, go bigger. It comes to you. I'm a huge fan of energy and the manifestation of thought. Um, for those of you that haven't read it, Think and Grow Rich is the de facto guide of how to become a millionaire, which is all about mindset and understanding specifically what you want to go after. Right. And uh, do you apply same principles to the entertainment business? Absolutely. And the reason why I'm asking, because right now the music is almost free. Like you, you oh, it is free. upload There's no something money in music on Spotify anymore. and then you're making sense. As a band, let's say you have a band or you, uh, a, be, a beginner songwriter, singer, how does that work? Yeah, it, it, it's so you've got to have the love for the craft. So you've got to be willing to do it free, but the music isn't where it's at anymore. Um, it's, it's in touring, it's in um, building an audience that, that can be monetized, it's in giving, it, it's building content around your personality. So, you know, back in the day, we just had this conversation on Damon's podcast is um, you know, back in the day, the suits kind of determined what they thought people wanted. And so now we have a tremendous amount of quantity out there. Uh, so we can get some, so like if you look at Billie Eilish is a great um, example of, of success there in the sense that she started on TikTok. She had a unique sound. She was true to who she was, started putting videos up on TikTok and, and ended up winning the Grammy this year. Um, 
that's that's the type of you look at a Justin Bieber who was discovered on YouTube. It's it's about content creation though more so than the music now. Right. And so it, it's a difficult prospect, but one that's worth it. I think uh, I, I like that examples, but um, I have a feeling that they're a little bit in the past because right now the media is so noisy that um, I, I, I like music. I write songs myself, but when I go on YouTube, I see so many talented um, singers that are not doing so great. And uh, the reason might be the uh, um, there's there's so much out there that people lose focus and they they're not even listening to that much music anymore. So discovering a new artist um, or forming a tribe where the people that love your music would follow you is extremely hard. And I have a feeling that same applies to the knowledge area, but a lot less because knowledge area at least is regulated with some credibility certifications uh, and uh, the real need because people do want to grow in their careers and they would want to learn new skills, get new certifications. But the music is just a Pandora box to me. It, it is, but there's a key word. If you look at like a Sean Mendez and like we said, Billy and, and talked about Justin and the, the, the key word is consistency. So yeah, there's tons of people out there on YouTube, but if they're not posting, you know, every day or every other day, uh, same with like TikTok. If you're not putting content out in a place where you are breaking through the noise. So, you know, maybe you had a video that, that got real popular, but if you go back to Sean, not anymore, but my daughter found Sean Mendez, you know, years ago, she, she showed me on, you know, his YouTube channel. And there was times where, you know, he had a thousand views, 2000 views, mm -hmm. but he was still just, you know, pumping out content and doing his thing and, and staying consistent. That's a word um, that, that really is not the sexiest word when we talk about business or, or music right. or any of that stuff. But if you're consistent, consistency compounds. If your audience knows every, you know, every Monday you're going to drop it at 9am, they're, they're going to listen. Same with podcasting. I mean, there's 300, 400,000 podcasts out there and there's a lot of people that start and stop them. Right. They, they do 20 episodes and they go, well, I don't have an audience. Well, uh, work-life balance, I, I've been doing for five years, every Friday. Um, you've got to stay consistent in order for it to succeed. Right. Uh, would you like to share some more lessons about the podcasts, um, especially uh, for those people who do it not on the radio, but rather than rather on independent uh, software devices? where they can see exactly how many people are listening. They have no way to reach more audience like in radio. I mean, obviously they can put money into it, but that's mm, probably not something a lot of people want to do right away um, before at least they build up content. Um, and so a lot of the people that ask me about podcasts, they think, you know, once they press the button and upload it to iTunes, then, you know, boom, you've got an audience. So the, there's the social media component. There's getting it out there. Um, again, consistency is a big play. Uh, formats a big play. You know, most podcasts you want to have between 28 to, to 45 minutes. Uh, that's about the average uh, American commute to work. 
Uh, and so people like to listen to podcasts on their commute to school or to work, those kinds of things. So timing is a, is a big thing. But I think the biggest thing that people miss in a podcast is, you know, people come to me and they say, well, I want to start a podcast. And my question is why? Well, I just, I think I have a lot of great stories to tell. I was like, well, it's not about you. Like other than your mom, you know, who wants to hear those stories? Same thing with writing a book. I got to write a book. Why? I mean, who's going to read it? And and that sounds callous when you say it like that. But the point is, is you do a podcast and you write books for the reader and for the listener, not to edify you or to edify, you know, your story. You do it so that you're bringing entertainment or knowledge or content to a user for the user. Now, when you, you ask about tools, one of my favorite tools that I use right now to produce our podcast is uh, it's actually uh, called podcast.co. It's, a, it's an up and coming app, uh, but it makes it very, very simple uh, to upload and, and manage multiple shows as well as it does all the distribution to iTunes, Spotify, all of those. And it does consolidate the statistics so we can find out how many listens, which platforms are performing better, um, which episodes are performing better so we can utilize that to, to drive future episodes. Uh, so podcast.co is probably one of my favorite tools out there right now in terms of distribution of a podcast. Yes. And um, does it really help to have many podcasts because people spill over or do you actually do um, each podcast for a different audience? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, tongue lashing one that Damon does is purely for the entertainment audience and, and his fans. I mean, he's, he's, it's not exactly um, PC content all the time. And he's a nut, he's a nutball. I love the guy to death. He's one of the funniest people I think I've ever met. Um, the transformational leader podcast is, is about interviewing transformational leaders and, and the things that they've overcome and then work-life balance. I really named it that because I can go anywhere with the content uh, but it started uh, around project management, grew into business and entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I'll have people from all different industries. I just had like Barb Stegman on, who uh, was the creator of Seven Virtues Perfume. I had Dr. Ivan Meisner on, who founded uh, BNI. Um, so I'm just talking to to people that are really interesting uh, to me and, and get a chance to to dive in a little bit deeper than some of the surface content. So that's what work-life balance is about. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, now I want to um, discuss the elephant in the room, COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, the impact, uh, and especially uh, you mentioned on podcasts, because usually people listen to podcasts when they commute. So now all the commute is scrapped out. Yep. Um, uh, do you anticipate more volume, more listeners once the quarantine is over, all of a sudden everyone's just going to start consume more podcasts. Um, uh, or are there any strategies you're using right now to uh, connect with your audience? Yeah, my strategy is always the, yeah, strategy is always the same is to stay consistent and have a consistent product. Um, I, I think people are dabbling in the podcast right now. They're bored, but I think because they're bored, their mindset's not you know, quite always there in listening to new podcasts like maybe they would in their normal consumption mode. So I, I don't really anticipate that the numbers changing a whole lot. Um, I think the audiences are still the, the great thing about podcasts. You listen to it on your time, right? You, 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 
the, the, the greatest invention in the world for television was DVR, because if you couldn't be in front of your television set at Wednesday at 8 PM, you can still see the show. Um, so I, I don't anticipate those numbers changing a whole lot. I feel like there's going to be a lot. I think new podcasts are going to flood the market because now everybody's got the time to do one. Because <laughs> they're <laughs> so everybody who's been putting it off for a while will will, will join. But there's all different styles, and um, you know I'm a big fan of um, investigative ones um, like Up and Vanished. Really, anything that Payne Lindsay does. Um, because those tell me stories and it kind of gets me out of the business mode a little bit. Um, those are really interesting to me. Um, I think uh, to live and die in LA was one that Payne produced as well. That was really good. Um, but I, I, I don't anticipate it changing a tremendous amount um, because people are still looking to be entertained. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, we want to talk about the impact of um yeah, the quarantine on businesses. Uh, how are you dealing with the impact? Uh, so, have you done anything creatively to um, decrease the impact? Yeah, I've, I've been I've been lucky, but a, a great friend of mine, Chase Hampton, does a speech on luck, and and luck is where preparation meets opportunity. The only thing you can't really um, change about luck is timing, right? But uh, preparation and opportunity, you know, people are always like, oh, that fell in your lap. No, I've been training for that for years, right? <laughs> it's just, just the opportunity finally presented itself. So we started to put together the online community of the PM Tribe back in January, uh, did a soft launch in March, official launch April 1st. Well, if you, if you look at the, the business of that, most of the people that we're servicing there you know, are used to paying $250, $300 to go to a symposium to listen to speakers for, for eight hours. The PMI chapters were paying, you know, thousands of dollars to the speakers to come in. And we have a, a very, very inexpensive way to bring those same speakers to a virtual community. Um, so timing wise, I don't think we could have planned it better as people are searching for social connection as well as, you know, virtual way to, to, to meet people. So it seemed that we were primed to, 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 you know, hit that. Now my speaking side of the business, that's in the tank. I mean, I've had everything through August uh, cancel, probably, you know, probably 20 events. And so you're looking at $150,000, $200,000 of revenue just gone. Um, so you've just got to learn to maintain. Um, when we went through uh, the recession years ago, I got a chance to meet with Jack Welch. And I asked him at the time, uh, of the recession. I was like, what, what advice would you give to a small business owner? And he said, you know, number one, whatever you projected for the year, he goes, I'd cut that down to 25% of what you projected and act as if that's, that's where you're going to be. He said, number two, pay your best employees, keep them paid somehow. And he goes, I'm not talking about bonuses and incentives and things, pay them. And he goes, the third thing to do right now is recruit, find the best talent that aren't being taken care of by their current company so that when we do emerge out of the recession and gang, we will, right? It, we, we can't anticipate when it's going to be. Don't know if it's August, if it's going to go on through the year, however that's going to work, but we will emerge. And those that took these actions to, to really start to focus on how to grow their business right now, while everybody's, everybody's in a scarcity mindset at the moment, right? Everybody's in, you know, what do we need to cut back? What services do we need to shut down? How do we save money? And then you have people that have an abundant mindset that says now's the time to really grow the business so that when we do emerge, we can really take over and go forward. 
Yes, and I, I was reading some of those um, financial advice uh, for small businesses and, and even investors. Everyone was saying, save the cash, don't spend. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, then who is going to, how the whole infrastructure going to work? Right. Because if everyone is holding on to cash, um, it's only going to get worse. Which is um, why the government of the United States are issuing stimulus checks. Because they're trying to flood you with the low cash to, so that you will spend, so that you will keep the economy going. Yeah, I mean, I hope it will actually play out that way. Um, but also, I think uh, I see the stock market uh, behaving in a in a frozen way as well, because everyone just stopped doing anything on the stock market. Most of the people that I know that are investing. Uh, what's your take on this? So again, it's scarcity versus abundance. Uh, scarcity says, all right, I'm, I'm going to save money. I'm going to get out. I'm doing what I can. Abundance mindset says, you know, these are some of the best prices you've ever seen for Apple and Disney and some of these other stocks. You know, it, it's one of those situations of, boy, I wish I could have got in when, right? So, um, you know, I remember going through the dot bomb and I made several investments in, you know, huge companies that had traditionally done well, like your Xerox and GEs and things like that. And I mean, it was rock bottom prices. And, and when we emerged out and the stocks kicked back in, you know, there's, there's a financial windfall from that. So it's, it's, you know, I'm not suggesting everybody forego their rent and go invest in the stock market, but at the same time, it takes an honest look at this point because it will rebound. It's going to rebound. Um, it's just, where's that entry point that you're most comfortable at? I've, and to be honest, I'm not comfortable yet. I still think that there's a little bit of a fall that's going to come, but I am watching some key stocks and I've got some, some price points in mind that if they hit that level, then I'm going to jump in. Right. And I think it's, it is a tricky situation uh, because uh, we don't know how uh, this pandemic might change the way we live and work uh, for at least about two years, in my opinion. Um, but do you see kind of a, a new, new uh, post-COVID-19 world where certain things, certain business ideas would be more successful than others and certain things you should completely kind of abandon the idea of doing that type of business? It's it really hard to say because even even in times of, of great wealth, when you see an Uber come along or an Airbnb, I, I can't tell you how many people said that was a dumb investment. It would never work. Um, and, and off it went. So I, I don't feel like there's ever an idea that we should avoid. I think all ideas are great ideas until we prove that we don't like them. <laughs> right. So um, so it's 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 hard to, to say. And I, I don't fancy myself an expert in that way. Um, but uh, I do think that even when we start to emerge, there is going to be a post hangover, kind of like 9-11 was, where, you know, events may start kicking off again, but people aren't going to quite trust it and want to spend the money to get there. It, it's going to take a while, I think, to, to, to emerge out of this. I think there's definitely going to be impact and changes um, to, to the business front. Um, but uh, I, I, well, I'd make a lot of money if I knew what those were. <laughs> That's true. And uh, I think for at least working from home, 
that might become a thing for most of the companies because now they actually have a good uh, experiment to see how productive they're going to be. Because a lot of companies didn't want to go into that mode thinking face-to-face -face is more productive. So we'll Yeah, but I think it's unfair to, to judge the productivity at this time too. But it, it was it's funny, I was talking with my uh, social media manager and she, she and I both have worked at home for, I mean, I've been working at home since 2005. Um, and everybody, they're, they're learning the perils. Everybody goes, oh, I want a job where I work from home. There's a lot of perils that come with that, especially if you have kids and spouses and you know, that the, the don't recognize that the, the door means business is happening. Right? <laughs> and, and because you're home, you can do the honeydew list versus understanding that there's, there's work still being done. And you have a ton of people figuring that out right now, which is, is, is funny. I think that just trying to figure out how to still have that personal space and business space is, is a tough thing for a lot of people to manage. Uh, yes. Uh, and also, I think it's a great opportunity uh, for people to, uh, first of all, learn that behavior. Um, and also just uh, really be grateful to whatever job that you have. Uh, that's why I'm not too worried about the productivity because I feel like whoever has work now, they're working full on because knowing the economic uh, consequences uh, of the pandemic, uh, they want to be the most uh, uh, thriving company as a whole, and they want to contribute most and be the best employee um, and keep that job. So, and I think for a lot of families out there, um, uh, they probably do support whoever is working in the family to make sure they're not um, they're not distracted and they do everything that needs to happen for the business. Um, and unfortunately for working parents where both, both of them work, um, it might be tough, but again, there are so many companies who provide online education for kids um, and online entertainment like uh, classes, gym classes and uh, karate classes online. That's amazing. Absolutely. So I think people are figuring it out and um, going back into the, the software uh, a theme, uh, I know that you're a clarity expert and uh, um, I've also done a couple of implementations at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. That's where I first uh, started using clarity. So um, uh, I love that software, but there have been some more advanced new things coming up. And one of them is Clarison I used. Uh, tell me more about the PDWare and yeah, how it's, it's different and what do you do for them? Are you so, in their board or do you work as a consultant? No, I, I work with them now and I work work directly with the developers to continue to to create new content and, and things. So when you look at the the like you have your big three to me, which is your your plan view, uh your primavera, your your CAPPM, those are huge tools. Um, but I would say only about five percent of organizations actually utilize them the way they're supposed to, because they're hard. They require change. And people then um 
just relegated down to time tracking, right? Time tracking, task tracking, that kind of stuff. They're not really using the portfolio management because there's a big learning curve. So your Clarisons, your uh, at task or work front now, Daptives, those, you know, those started to spin up, um, which was a real ease of use, but lacked a lot of the processing power that the CA PPMs and all that uh, can do. And so each kind of tool needs to focus on what its niche is. And in PDWare, was the first on the market that focused around resources first before projects, before anything else, um, which means the the stand-up time is is really about two weeks for us to be able to look at a portfolio view of where our resources are and what they're working on. It was also the first on the market, though, that could tell you when to start a project based on your resources. So got a new project, I estimate, you know, how many types of roles that I need, and it'll tell me where the gaps are in terms of when we you know, pick up this project, do we have the, the right amount of people? Uh, so at, at the end of the day, it really comes down to ease of use and how much change there is. Well, organizations that haven't invested in a, a, a platform are probably doing it by spreadsheet. And so PDWare uses, a, it's a very spreadsheet-esque interface, very, very simple entry uh, to get the data. Whereas, um, you know, some of the other tools, it, it, it requires months to, to implement, you know, fully. The other thing about the configurability of like a CAPPM or PlanView or Primavera is that everybody tries to do everything at once. They've made this huge investment, you know, software is expensive, so they try to do everything at once and the learning curve is, is so high. Um, whereas, you know, we want a kind of a crawl, walk, run type of approach that says, first, let's just get a list of projects, list of resources and balance those. Let's see where we are. Then you can bring in some project management. Then you can bring in some portfolio decision making. But until we know where those resources are, that's the foundational component of any portfolio. Like I, I watch executives all the time come up with these great formulas around ROI and NPV and IRR and all that stuff to try to determine which projects to invest in. But they don't put any of that time towards whether or not they have the resources to do it. And so I don't care what the ROI is of a, of a project. If I don't have the people to do it, then the ROI is wrong. And They're not feasible. Yeah, yeah, it's not feasible. And, and, and so that shouldn't be our primary decision. It should be a factor, sure. And I'll give you one of my favorite portfolio management tips, especially working with large organizations, is they try to do these wicked formulas. Like, all right, ROI is five times more important than you know IRR and all this other stuff. And so what I always say is, just get to each criteria and I'm going to rank the projects um, based on that criteria alone. So let's say you've got a hundred projects. I'm going to take the top 20 from each criteria. So what's, what's the NPV? What's the ROI? What's this? And, and put, put those out there. And then any of the projects that are in the top 20 across all those criteria are automatically in. We're not even discussing them because regardless of how you want to argue about it, they all made your top 20. They're in. So now we're just talking about, you know, the projects below that. It's a really simplistic way to go, to go about uh, portfolio management, but it's much more successful because then people argue about the formula, not about the project. All right. And uh, in terms of promoting uh, PDWare, do they have an affiliate system? Uh, do they uh, sponsor conferences? What's their primary? Primary, primary now is social, uh, social media marketing, just getting the message out. They're a relatively small company, um, which, is, which is why I, I'm joining up to help grow the, the brand itself. 
but uh, it, it's generally awareness. It, it, conference sponsorships are fine. I just don't see the, the ROI in that at all. Um, affiliate programs are, are fine, but the, it, it's still, there's still a big learning curve where you need to have, you know, maybe partner organizations, but not necessarily affiliates or, you know, here, click on this link and get the software, which is, is a powerful way to market, but that's your low end, you know, $20 a, a user kind of um, entry fee. So it, it, right now it's primarily just building social media, uh, media channels and getting us out there. And I think working with PMs uh, and showcasing the benefits is, is really important. And I love new software because one thing that's, that really uh, struck me with uh, CA Clarity is that uh, my first encounter was in 2007. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then I worked with it for about three years. Um, and then... Um, uh, I worked in different industry in FMCG where they didn't have such a complicated portfolio management system. Uh, so when I went back to consulting and we had a client and, and they also started doing, um, they implemented parts of CA, but uh, they had another part that they wanted to implement. So I was a part of that project. Yeah. And it looked the same. The, uh, the interface hasn't changed in about 12 years. No, that's not true. They, so I was astonished. No, no, no. So, so when Daptive and, and Workfront really started coming up, right, it, it was the UI was the, was the big thing, and CA had fallen way behind. But CA made a huge decision. Um, they, they brought a guy by the name of uh, Paul Pedrazzi on and then Kurt Steinle, who is the, the manager of the product, um, they, they, it, it was a long-term strategy, but what they did was build a whole API network so that you have the same, the old interface um, or the classic interface and all of the power, but in the API, there's a whole new UI experience. And then they started rolling out uh, persona by persona on all of the UI. So it was uh, a, a huge um, infrastructure that they had to do. And now that it's out and running, uh, clients have the choice to use the new UI or they can use the classic UI. And so a lot of companies are just kind of staying with classic because they don't like change. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at what, what happened with PlanView, they decided to build a whole nother app and it's lighter and it's better user interface than their current product, but the databases don't connect. So it's actually buying two different products. Whereas in CA, you, you can use either interface, but it was the same database. It was a brilliant move. It, it was a long-term strategy that worked out for them. But yeah, their, their new interface is very, very slick. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Which year was that implemented? Uh, the new interface, I believe, started coming out in around 2014. And they're doing four to five releases now a year that's, that's upgrading it. So it focused first on what they call PM Lite. Uh, mm -hmm. But now it's got full resource management, financial management, project management. It's got a whole road mapping feature, which is really, really nice. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, that's, yeah, that's been evolving. Uh -huh. Well, now I get it. My, my client most likely didn't want change. Yeah, there you that's go. very typical of <laughs> big banks. Um, well, that was fun. Um, so uh, thank you so much for such a insightful, uh, deep conversation. Uh, I just want to add the last question. 
what do you do every day that contributes to your success? You've talked about consistency. So yeah. is there any single action you take every day? Um, so I have several actions I take every day in a consistent manner. I think the one, so it depends on what you want to do. For my podcast, I read every morning. Uh, so I'm always reading. So I take 30 minutes in the morning and read something new, just anything, just read something new. For my books and in writing, I, I journal every night. Um, so I, I take, you know, the last 10, 15 minutes before I decide to go up to bed and I'll sit down, just what am I feeling? What was cool today? Um, you know, I got to, uh, to interview somebody today for the transformational leader podcast who dropped a couple of really beautiful nuggets. So I want to expand on those ideas and, and what are my thoughts around that? Um, so journaling every day, you, you know, John Maxwell probably writes more books than anybody I've ever met. When people ask him, they say, well, how do you do it? He goes, well, I write every day, every day I write, every day I read, every day I file. Um, and that's how he's able to, to produce so much content. So it's a discipline, um, but you got to start writing if, if you want to write a book or you got to start continually learning if you want to do a podcast. Uh, I think that is really helpful. Um, and it really does discipline you to take that consistent step towards your plan towards your project. Um, it, it's really, really helpful. Thank you so much uh, again for um, taking time and uh, opening up to our open school business. And uh, we wish you much success and uh, a lot of followers uh, that are really interested uh, in the topics you are interested and in those clients that are really your clients. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.